La spinage au la bouchon, si grec de pote bello, si rakish pacaletto, si le tula tilatua. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, currently, I am working my way through the writings of James Adji, as collected in the Library of America. We have two volumes to work through um, over the course of, I guess, four, 14, 15 episodes, probably, four, probably 14 episodes, I think, uh, 13 or 14. Um, but anyways, the first part, we, the stuff we've been looking at um, for a while now uh, is Adji on Film, which is a collection uh, put together, I think in the late 50s after Adji died, um, putting together all his film writing or a big collection of it, especially his nation reviews and many of his time reviews. When the Library of America put together this volume of his film writing, they added, uh, in addition to Adji on Film, they added some other uncollected film writings, mostly Time magazine uh, reviews that weren't included in the original Edgy on film. Then we, we get uh, his Night of the Hunter. Um, and that I'll talk about in the next episode, his screenplay for Night of the Hunter. I'll talk about the production of Night of the Hunter, um, the, some of the, the mythology around it, and the film itself, and the, and the screenplay itself, because they do line up fairly well. Um, I'm excited to talk about that. It was the first time I ever saw Night of the Hunter. I, I've heard of it before, but only vaguely. I knew it was kind of seen as a classic film, but um, it was nice to see. Um, and then there's some things that aren't film related, just a few sorted um, journal, pieces of journalism, book reviews that I guess they, they didn't really know where else to put it. Um, so that will, that's what's coming ahead in the next, this episode and the next few. Um, frankly, I'm not quite sure what more to say about the film reviews. Um, because I, th I think I have a pretty good idea, and I think if you listen to the previous four episodes, you have a good idea of, of, of kind of what I've extracted from um, Adji's commentary on film, uh, his, his, his fondness for authenticity, his fondness for uh, fully using the medium of film, uh, his, his kind of his fondness for like uh, realism in terms of actors, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Gregory Peck because he gets into the problem of the actor a little bit in an essay he wrote about Gregory, Gregory Peck. Um, and he liked the film real stuff. Uh, it's also significant. He wrote a lot of his film reviews during the war and immediately after the war. So he's dealing with a lot of war films and the legacy of the war. And I think that's really important stuff. Um, uh, I should note that although it's not included in this collection, Edgy wrote a screenplay for Chaplin with the intention that Chaplin would use it, and it never got picked up. I think I said in a previous episode that Monsignor Verdot was Chaplin's last film. That's wrong. He wrote Lime, Lime, not Limelight, too. That comes a little bit later, but I, I forgot about that. And I've never actually seen Limelight. But, uh, so, he's, he's not insignificant. Even if you go to his Wikipedia, like, he's famous for being, like, one of America's most influential film reviewers. Uh, that's despite the fact that Adji talks about himself in his Nation reviews as an amateur, as someone who's just sort of watching films and giving commentary on it. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe that's a 
not quite true. Maybe we shouldn't see him as an amateur, um, but that's how he sort of presented himself. But and I, I think that I, again, just before we we kind of wrap up this section of of film writing, I, I just say it again. I think Adji's approach to film, essentially blogging here, his his column in the in the Nation in particular, is very similar to how people these days on on formats like YouTube talk about film or blogs film bloggers too but i think youtube is maybe even more significant now where you know people just say i'm just a i'm just a joe blow you know i saw the film I'm gonna give me my comments on it right a lot of us get our film reviews from these people now not from the official film reviewers in, in the newspapers and that kind of more amateur approach i think is is, is certainly being valued a lot a lot more and I don't know if Adji started it, but he certainly ran with it. Um, he and and it's just, it just it's not like each column is one filming one not just one review. He's got like the top ten of each year, uh, quote unquote top ten. He doesn't do it that approach, but he's got the film roundup at the end of the year. Sometimes he just gives the bullet points for a dozen films he saw recently that he he never got to do full reviews for. He has different approaches, and and I appreciate that about it about him him here. So um, now going through the book, we, we were kind of well into the Time magazine uh, film reviews, the section of Adjian film that includes some of the Time magazine film reviews. And we just finished up, I think, with Henry V, which we talked about as an important war film, obviously. Um, so what else do we have here? Well, uh, he's got a review of Ivan the Terrible. Um, which is an Eisenstein film. I think he mentions this in one of the Nation reviews, but maybe I didn't talk too much about it. He obviously loved Eisenstein um, and, and adored him as a filmmaker. Doesn't like Eisenstein so much as the propagandist, though, he says in this review. But Eisenstein, the artist, never gives wholly to Eisenstein, the propagandist. Um, every moment... In it is exciting, but springing as it does against the tensions of near standstill, it is exciting as if a corpse moved. Besides restricted motion on the movie, Eisenstein also fought shy of realism. All of his characters, their faces and their gestures are superhuman rather than human. End quote. Um, but just a little bit of warning here is that there is that kind of propaganda aspect of Eisenstein that he didn't like. I, I've said several times, I get the sense that I, uh, that Adji is sort of socialist adjacent, but he doesn't like, I, he's not ideological, and he doesn't like that. Um, like in Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, he opens this with a quote from Marx, right? Workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, and they got the world to win. And he has a, like a asterisk and a footnote where he says like, you know, well, I'll talk about this later, but he basically says like, I don't mean by this what you think I mean by this. I just mean what it says, um, which I think is kind of interesting because how else are you going to take it except how it's said? But the fact is it's been mythologized. That phrase is so associated with Marxism and socialism that it's hard not to see the two is tied together. So he's saying just read it as it is and, and you experience it differently than if you read it as, as an ideology. Um, but anyways... Um, there's a good review there of, of, of Ivan, of, of, of Eisenstein's Ivan, the terrible. Um, so on June 28th, 1948, which is towards the end of his writing film reviews for both The Nation and Time, that's one of his last reviews for, for Time, he, he reviews 
um, Olivier's, Sir Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. And, and this is kind of a follow-up to Henry V. Um, so the question is, if Henry V proved that you could have a successful production of, of Shakespeare for film and that Shakespeare could be translated to film, um, can then you translate like Shakespeare at his best? Like, can you because you, there's that top tier Shakespeare, there's that transcendent Shakespeare works like Hamlet. Can that be translated? Can a work like that be translated? And that's still an open question, Edgy says. Um, now he thinks he's successful in his Hamlet. I haven't seen this version of Hamlet, uh, honestly, but he thinks it's successful. But I also think there's another level to this: is that Henry V seems to work because it's a war film coming at the end of a war, dealing with the themes of democracy, um, of the of a people's war, uh, and and that whole experience of war, a generational experience of war feeds into Henry V. It gives meaning to that, that I think maybe if people watch it now without having that experience of war in quite the same way, you know, we'll, we'll read it differently and think about it differently, right? So the question is here, can a, you know, Hamlet's not a war film. It's, it's a very different, Hamlet's not a war story. It's a very different type of story. Um, but can you translate like peak Shakespeare? To the film and to quote Adji, the answer is yes. The screen is indeed adequate to Shakespeare's greatest, with director actor Olivier Hamlet's proof, with his admirable filming of one of the most difficult of plays. The whole of Shakespeare's dramatic poetry is thrown open, wide open to good movie makers. There's also a strong suggestion in this film, Hamlet, that the movies have more than an enlarged medium to give to Shakespeare. What does he mean by that? Well, he means by this actors. There is this, uh, of course, some crossover. A handful of actors do go from film to stage or stage to film. Uh, that happens, but by and large, there's stage actors and there's film actors. And, and that might have been even more true back uh, in, this, in, in this day, I don't know. But he says, John Gene Simmons, you know, you couldn't have had Gene Simmons on the stage. And Gene Simmons brought something to Ophelia that had never been brought to that character before uh, and that could only be done in film. So there's those kinds of additions. So Shakespeare can be improved almost by, or at least if not improved, can be enhanced and something can be added to the storytelling of, of, of these plays through the medium of film. And I think that's one thing Adji valued a lot with film is if you're going to do film, he talked about this when he was looking at like Great Expectations, the adaptation of Dickens' novels, that you want to be able to say, like, what can film do? And then that adds to the story. And that's what you want to do with film. You don't want to try to cram certain things into it. I think that's why he likes uh, like newsreel footage, because it just is what it is. And it, and it does that as best as it can. But with film, you can do certain things. Um, tell stories in certain ways, trick the viewers in certain ways, whatever. And you should do that. You should take full advantage of that. And directors that don't are somehow like misusing the medium. I think that's, that's more or less part of his point of view about film. Um, and obviously that's going to be the case with a stage. You can do things on film that you can't do on stage. And in this case, it's bringing an actress to a certain height that, um, that wouldn't have been possible on the stage. I think partially it's her youth, right? Could a 19-year-old actor play Ophelia on the stage? Uh, I think that's uh, 
maybe not possible, but on, on, on film it's possible to, to use her talents and, and bring them to life. He writes, for instance, was it an advantage to Miss Simmons to have nothing but movie training before this role? She would doubtless have had the same freshness and the same talent for heartfelt speech if she had never heard of movies, but she had her constant mentors. J. Arthur Rank's insolent dramatic coach, ex-actress Molly Terrain, one of the best imaginable teachers, Laurence Olivier. Jean Simmons had lived in Golden Greer, a suburb of London, since she was a year old. Rank publicists liked to emphasize this honest super-suburbanity. Su super-suburbanity. Super-suburbs, I guess. Jean's grandfather was a music hall artist who did great care that his children should stay off the stage. And then he goes into how she came across this role um, in the Olivier Hamlet production. Uh, he writes, she is a sweet-natured, spirited, unaffected girl and unquestionably a talented one. She also has got the makings of a big popular movie star. She already gets 2,000 fan letters a, a week. Among them, there have already been 12 proposals of marriage and a proposition from an Indian chiropodist, which is the ultimate sort of accolade a movie star must get used to. Would Miss Simmons be so kind, the Indian fan asked her, as to send him a photograph of her feet and a sliver of toenail. If Miss Simmons had got along quietly to Bristol, she could doubtless continue to call her soul and even her toenails her own. She might even in time become such a thing as Olivier is today. The most moving, gratifying thing in this film is to watch this talented artist in the prime of his accomplishment work with one of the most wonderful roles ever written. And then he moves on to talk about Olivier. Um, but I think he's saying like Simmons could only is a could only be exist in film, and so he, she could only do a, a, a Ophelia in film. I, th I think. Um, and now Olivier, I don't think that's true for of. Uh, I think he was someone who did both. Um, but anyways, it's it's a rather lengthy review, and I think it's worth worth checking out. So the final couple selections in Adji on film. We've gone through the Time uh, articles, some of them at least. We've gone through the Nation articles in a little more detail. We read uh, Comedy's Greatest, um, what's it called? Golden Age of Comedy, Comedy's Greatest Age. And we've read The Undirectable Director about John Huston. And then there's a couple essays that are just called miscellaneous. And they're the final pages of Adji on film. The first of them isn't really about film directly. That's why it's kind of under miscellaneous, I guess. But it's an article that was published in the Partisan Review uh, in the spring of 1944 called Pseudofolk. And boy, is this one uh, kind of... I don't know. I don't know what to think about this one. It's a little bit... Uh... Apparently it was controversial at the time. And, and I can see why. I don't really agree with him here. Um, now, he's kind of dealing with, some, with folk traditions of becoming bougie and becoming mainstream and becoming kind of commercialized. And he's kind of hostile to that. I, I think the problem is how he kind of racializes this experience. He, he kind of sees the African-American artist as being partic particularly susceptible or the, of, folk of their folk traditions being kind of commodified and commercialized and you know part of the reason for that certainly is because those great popular american art forms did have african-american roots right particularly like jazz um and he gives examples of of this he talks about like hazel scott 
writing, the quintessential of this special kind of vicious pseudo-folk, in my opinion, is Hazel Scott. She plays the sort of jazz one could probably pick up by now through a correspondence school. She plays her classics with a slobbering, anarchic, vindictive, rushing affection, which any mediocre elementary piano teacher would slap her silly for. Her swingings of these classics is beyond invective. So if so is her own manner towards herself, her work, her audience. It makes the reading matter of Edna Milne seem as decent at least as that of Little Egypt. And then he adds this, kind of making it more of a, a broader racial thing. Quote, the pity of it is that the Negroes themselves seem to be as often fooled by the sort of decadence as whites are. Miss Scott is a concentrated symbol of corruptive self-deceit upon whom I can waste little personal regard. But there are others as well, well-known and unknown, about whom I feel very badly. And he mentions here Paul Robeson, being another person who's been sort of vulgarized by, by fame and popularity. So I, I think the problem here is, is true in that folk traditions, rich, thick, uh, meaningful in various ways that are really tied to local communities, do tend to get popularized. And when they do that, it, does, it doesn't always, it's not always for the better. But I think sometimes... There is good stuff in the popular genre. I don't think popular... He, he's a bit... sounds like these old people like railing against popular fiction or, or, or genre fiction or whatever. Uh, it's... There's a kind of a... It's a kind of almost a weird kind of elitist. Elitism. Because he's talking about folk traditions, which isn't elitist, but he's saying it's like... He's almost saying, like, I like this stuff before it was cool, I guess. And, you know, I, like, you young listeners you don't know what it was like back in the day we had you know folk music was something really special back when i listened to it and now it's all kind of crap and it's all been taken over by hollywood or the radio and and that's what i don't really dig about this essay is it does kind of come off as an older man complaining about a genre being popularized right and then the fact that he kind of centers this on the black artistic experience is another thing um, I don't really like about this essay. He writes, I think this sort of deceit and decay is most disastrous and most conspicuous among Negroes. And I'm interested again to observe that that is so in rough proportion as they are our richest contemporary source of folk art and our best people in block. But it does not stop any means of the Negroes. The mock primitive demagogic style of the great bulk of WPA and leftist paintings is a white disease mainly. I don't know who he's talking about there. Uh, I, I kind of have some images like the murals on public buildings that appeared in the 1930s. Of course, yeah, I got Thomas Hart Benton. I don't think he means him, but maybe more um, um, lesser artists who did these kind of mural works, these WPA projects. Um, they're just kind of imitating, kind of not, not as talented, I guess, as people like Benton. I guess. I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking in his head, to be honest. Because I like a lot of that uh, WPA mural work. I think some of it's kind of cool. And I think we're, we, we need more public art of that sort. And if it's not all masterpieces, big deal, right? That's it's not its function necessarily. I don't think that was the function of the WPA artist projects. was to necessarily only fund like the greatest. It is weird, like... Because he's talking about folk art, and there's still this kind of emphasis on, on like the greats, the great folk artists. 
which I think whenever you're talking about folk art, you're going to get a mix. You're going to get a mix of different traditions um, and talents. And some are going to be less trained. Some are going to be less skillful than others. So I don't know. Um, so he wraps it. He calls us all pseudo pseudo folk. Um, basically, it's the popularized folk tradition that becomes decadent and vulgar and and you see with it a declining quality. Um, so what do you get here? You get, uh, he's got different characteristics of it. I think he's got 13. I won't, I won't mention all of them. But one is you get the non-folk crossing into the folk. That's the true pseudo-folk. That's where you'll get like, uh, you'll classify, classic, classicize uh, folk tradition. Uh, does he mean Gershwin here? I mean, Gershwin did this. Um, uh, I don't know. Then you get the folk crosses the non-folk, and here he blames um, Paul Robeson, but he also blames uh, Disney uh, for doing this, uh, where you have kind of classically trained traditions that borrow folk, folk traditions. Again, it's kind of all part of the popularization of it. Um, then he says this, the entertainer who relies chiefly on being niggery, Mrs. Scott's grimaces in creative folk mock orgasm and exploitation of her busts and armpits, um, basically copying black artists, I guess, is what he's trying to say here. Um, contempt for the audience is another part of this pseudo-folk tradition. Um, I don't know, there's other things he mentions here. It's interesting. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting article, and it's worth checking out. Um, just as a kind of a conversation starter or, a, or, or some thoughts on this. Because it's, it's an ongoing problem, I, I agree, where you do get these mixtures of genres and a kind of degradation of folk traditions when that happens. And it, it's been an ongoing problem, I think, in rock and roll, right? And in various subgenres of, of popular music. But where I disagree with him is, I mean, you can't really blame artists for trying to monetize their talents in whatever way they can. And the market speaks in a way. And, and what are artists to do? Stick to their guns? I mean, are classically trained, I guess one example of this would be, should a classically trained opera singer never do a concert of, of you know, more of popular songs, popular kind of operatic style songs, right? Who's that blind guy who does that? That's kind of the popular um, tenor um, songs, you know, and not really singing the opera arias necessarily. What's his name? I don't know, but even like the, the three tenors, right? They kind of did this. They kind of went into the popular genre a little bit, even though they still performed regular opera roles. I mean, should you not do that? I guess Adji's saying that that does kind of degrade the tradition, um, those popular traditions. Or should folk musicians never, you know, be never let their tradition be corrupted at all? I, I, I don't know if that's because these traditions themselves are kind of diverse and have multiple influences. It's kind of more soupy. It's not like there's a pure pure jazz or a pure blues or something. So I don't know, but I urge you to kind of check out that that essay because it is this, it does stand out in this collection. Um, 
what else do we have here? Then, really, the last thing in Adjian film is a review of Sunset Boulevard, written in 1950. One of his last film writings, I guess. All right, now that's the whole of Adjian film. So everything I've talked about in these five episodes up to this point has been one book, um, Adjian film, 470 pages. Then the Library of America editor, should get his name, Michael uh, Sargau, um, Michael Sargau, editor and film critic for the Baltimore Sun. He's not, the, I don't think he's the guy who edited the other, no, he also edited the, the other Adji volume. But he's like a film guy. Then, he, then there's a section called Uncollected Film Writing, which are works by Adji about film that weren't included in the original Adji on film um, anthology. And these are mostly, to be honest, Time Magazine reviews that just didn't make the cut in that original anthology. Um, some of these are films he talked about in the Nation reviews. I think that's why they weren't included initially. Like he's got another review of the Battle of Russia, the Army Orientation film, uh, Lifeboat by Hitchcock uh, with the Marines at Tarwana. These are films he talked about in the Nation reviews. So I think that's why they weren't included in Adjian film, just because there's overlap. But uh, our editor here thought it worthwhile to mention mention it. I'm not going to say too much about any of these because I've been kind of going on uh, enough about Adji's views on film. Uh, there is, though, a, not really a review, but an essay. Fairly long one, a couple thousand words, it looks like, on Gregory Peck. And I only want to mention this because it kind of gets to a problem he's been hinting at in a lot of his reviews, and that's like the problem of the leading man, the problem of the movie star, right? And, you know, I think we're in an age now where, like, the movie star doesn't have the power they once had, right? Because maybe it's because, I don't know, like, Tom Cruise, does he bring people to the theaters like he used to? You know, I don't think he does. Uh, who is it, George Clooney? I mean, there are people who maybe still have the aura of the movie star but they don't they're not the box office draw right because back in these days you have a you slap a name on the poster people are going to go to see that actor um that's going to be the draw and i don't know if that power is there anymore and if you look at some of like the best like you know like a lot of great actors they move to tv and they have some of their best roles on tv right uh, or Great TV shows have unknown actors who become kind of famous through through these television roles, but they're never that height, right? When they move to film, they, they kind of, they never have that same kind of clout. They're not, never that box office draw. And I, and I know Hollywood keeps looking for the, those draws. They, they try to groom different actors, but I, I get the sense that power of the leading man isn't there anymore, or the leading lady for that matter. And I think it's a relatively recent change. I mean, even I think in the 90s you had leading men when I was like watching movies when I was still in high school and in college there were draws I mean there were movies you saw for the actor but that's really changed in the last couple decades but I think for Adji this is a problem because you never can have a realistic authentic film experience if everything is kind of framed around the movie star the movie star becomes the draw he becomes a spectacle 
and this is going to handcuff the, the director in what he does because the director is not going to be able to tell his stories authentically because of, of all the center, because of the, the power of that movie star, right? I keep remind, being remember, reminded of that quote in his review of Sahara where he's like, uh, Humphrey Bogart and other less paid Marines uh, or soldiers fight off a Nazi unit. It's like, you know, it doesn't make sense in a war film to have a movie star, especially if your point of your war film is like solidarity and collective action and, and collective suffering. You know, those themes you get in war films. It doesn't make much sense to have one guy who, who makes more than everyone else working on the film combined. And especially when you have someone who's going to be drawing all the attention of the photography, of the directing, of the acting, he's going to become the focus. And so, um, you know, he kind of thinks with, so this essay about Peck is kind of more like the pitfalls of being a big actor in Hollywood, the, the pitfalls of fame. Uh, he writes, for instance, in spite of Hollywood's bad reputation for misusing talent, studios normally try hard with anyone they regard as promising. With Peck, the movie makers were inclined to outdo themselves. Each studio needed a, male movie, male, a major male star, and Peck seemed like a good risk. Moreover, since no studio had been able to snare him outright, each was determined to sweat the very best possible use out of him. Peck was inadvertently handed some bum pictures, but each one was a major production, and during his first years... He had a run of virtually clear field. Since he ran into seriously and as efficiently as if the field were swarming with tacklers, he had established himself solidly by the time his competitors got back out of uniform. So the image we got here is Peck was able to play off the different studios against each other. Now everything's Disney, so I don't know. You don't have that kind of competition between studios. We're basically at a monopoly stage in, in, in film. We'll see. This coronavirus may kill the movie experience, the theater experience, and that may open up more competition because you're going to have, uh, you know, Netflix and the different streaming services competing, and maybe they'll be better able to compete with a monster like Disney. But maybe that's also one reason you, you have the death of the leading man, is right? Like people now, they go to see the Disney movie, right? Or Pixar movie or the Marvel movie. It's not for the actor necessarily. It's the brand. The brand is, is, is more the draw. Not that it matters because there's nothing else really in town than, than Disney. Um, all right. Anyways, this is kind of an interesting essay just about the, the pitfalls of being a leading man, I think. Um, and he's still writing when Gregory Peck was still a young actor. It's kind of like that review of John Huston where he's writing about John Huston when he's still relatively young. And not unknown, but, but still at the beginning of a promising career. You know, had Edgy been able to write this after Peck's entire career was completed, you know, maybe a different perspective on this. But I think it's a good uh, and kind of humanistic window into the, into the experience of being the leading man in, in Hollywood at this time in history. So um, I guess that's it for Adji's film writing. Five episodes is more than enough on this. Next, I will I, I'll kind of move on to a, and we'll be moving on to a new topic. It's still film related. Uh, Night of the Hunter, his screenplay for Night of the Hunter. 
Uh, now, for this, I have watched Night of the Hunter, and I watched it alongside the screenplay, and, and the screenplay has a lot more that didn't make it onto the film, but it's pretty much shot for shot uh, similar. It's just it was cut down because it was too long. Uh, the Library of America is about 100 pages, but I, but I heard that there was like a 200-page... I don't know if that's the same. I guess it's the same thing here, but, uh, you know, it was much longer. But scene for scene, it's the same. Just it's, it, it, it tended to go on. So uh, I'll talk about the production a little bit, talk about the film, and we'll look at the screenplay and the, and the story of Night on the Hunter. Kind of like uh, Monsieur Verdot uh, in that our, our main character is someone who murders wives. Murders widows for their money, marries widows and murders them for their money. Here it's, it's a real villain, though. Monsieur Verdot, because it's Chaplin who presented it, makes him kind of more anti-heroic. Here it's a straight-up villain and a monstrous, a pretty monstrous villain uh, at that. Um, but a good film, um, one that you can check out. It's only like an hour and fifteen minutes long, so a lot of interesting stuff going on there. So I'll talk about Night of the Hunter next time. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for bearing with me as I went through five episodes of his film reviews. Uh, I just scratched the surface, to be honest, because there's a lot of interesting stuff he says about a lot of films. I think it's a good book to, Agion Film is a good book to pick up, simply to be a guide if you wanted to know more about this era of Hollywood, of the, 19, the World War II era of Hollywood. I think it's a good window into that. And you could like read the reviews, watch the movies, and kind of... Um, relive if, if you're old enough to remember those films or, or learn for the first time uh, those about those films. So that's it. That's my recommendation for Adjian Film. Um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time with uh, my thoughts on Night of the Hunter. J'ai la peau de sapi, la toi. J'ai notre seule de mine, j'ai notre seule cantine. Je le sais trop sa vite. Je la tasse à toi.